Well, good morning again, and welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, I have a couple of things that I wanted to tell you, and the first thing is for those of you that are at home this morning and watching the live stream, um, at the end of our service this morning, we are going to be sharing in communion together, and so we just want to invite you to grab whatever you might have at home and to participate in communion at the end of the service. Is this the moment that I tell you that one time Cameron had a hot dog <laughs> in Haiti? I mean, he had a plate of food because it's kind of his, sorry, Cam, hot dog and Coke. I mean, really, nope, I'm not going to, yep, he's saying that's a good choice, Mom, to <laughs> stop talking, so I got you. I love you, Cam. Happy communion with whatever you find on your plate today. Um, okay, announcements for those of us in the room, as well as those of us that are at home. Um, we, I have some Thanksgiving meals to donate to anyone who might need something. Whether that's you here personally, you that are watching at home, or you have a friend that you know just needs a warm meal. Essentially, I have these, there's six vouchers that were left over from our food distribution that we had at Cedar Way this week. And um, it is for a fully cooked hot meal that you pick up on the 23rd, which is Tuesday. And it's at um, the Crazy Moose Casino in Mount Lake Terrace. I mean, I think it's real. It just occurred to me how funny that is as I was reading it. <laughs> but, the, so, okay, it, please reach out to me. And the way that you can reach out to me is many of you already have my phone number. You can text me, you can email me, or you can email brickviewchurchbriar at gmail.com. Um, and I would love to get these to anyone who might need um, a holiday meal, a Thanksgiving meal for the 23rd. Um, yesterday, we had such a lovely day at the women's event. Um, it was just really cool. It was cool to get to sit around tables, gather together, to be inspired together, to um, just be family. And so for those of you that poured yourselves out by decorating or hosting or showing up in some way, thank you, thank you, thank you. We had 35 ladies here. Um, and I had hoped for like 12. Like I was like, that'd be really cool. So really cool that we got to. Is the computer? Okay, cool. Okay, it's not. I mean, it's me, but it's not me. Uh, is it Cameron? Okay. <laughs> okay, move along, Jen. Okay, what's next? <laughs> oh, you guys. Outdoor Christmas. This violates all of my rules to talk about Christmas before Thanksgiving. But someone told me I should because many people get together at Thanksgiving and talk about what they're going to do for Christmas. So here we are violating all of my rules and talking about outdoor Christmas. We are going to repeat the event that we had last year um, with the mask mandate still in order and wanting to gather, be able to gather safely. Um, we will be able to be outdoors and maskless since we are an event that's under 500 people. Um, of course, masks are okay to be wearing if that makes you feel more comfortable. They're just not required um, by our um, local authority. So please, we would love for you to come to that. We do need help. We need help with fire pits again and hosts and setup and hot cocoa bar and all the things. Um, and so if you're able to help in some way with that, we're looking for volunteers as well. The way that you sign up to volunteer is either by reaching out to Brickview Church at Briar, at brickviewchurchbriar at gmail.com, or you fill out your online communication card. There's a little box for that. Or you can also um, text me as well. So, um, I'm excited. That is December 19th from 6 o'clock till 7.30 p.m. And um, that will be in lieu of our Christmas Eve service. So we won't have a service on the 24th. 
and actually we also won't have one on the 26th of December either, nor the 2nd of January. So the last time we're gonna hang out as a family in 2021 will be December uh, 19th there. So looking way ahead. Um, December giving. I know that this is a time where many of us have our heads up in the world and we're wanting to do something besides just treat yourself in December and we wanna help those that are struggling in our community. And the way that we do that here at Brookview is a couple of different things. Um, we will continue with our food pantry on December 7th at Cedar Way. And as part of that pantry, we're going to give each kid that's in the family a stocking that's filled with extras. And so our list, if you're used to seeing our distribution list where we look for items, is going to increase this month in order to accommodate for that. And the second thing that we're going to do is help with some needed items at Vision House. That's the same thing that we do every month. Every single month we have donations that come in for that. The other thing we're going to do is our traditional gift card drive. Um, and what happens so often is many of the nonprofit groups that we partner with or that work in our community, they're inundated with support in November and December. And then everything falls off the map for January and February, and they just have to hope that it lasts through that. And so we've decided to step up and step in in January, February, and March. So you giving those gift cards in December, then we distribute those to them to be used at a later date when their giving goes down. And so we're looking for gas cards, we're looking for grocery cards, we're looking for Target, that sort of thing. Starbucks even is a really sweet gift to be able to give that's outside of the norm as well. So I know sometimes you get things from employers and you're like, I just, I don't have a need for that. Um, and so you can, re-gifting is absolutely okay with the gift cards. Um, and so we'll have a little tree set up in the lobby starting next week and you can throw those gift cards underneath the tree and we will make sure that those get to Vision House and then also to the Nourishing Network and they'll be buying some of the staples when their shelves start to empty out with those um, grocery store gift cards that you're donating. So um, I've always just been so thankful for what you guys do around the holidays and so are the groups that we partner with. They're always overwhelmed at your generosity. So thank you, thank you, thank you for that. Um, back one, one spot there, if you are not on our distribution list for items when we need things for Cedar Way and for Vision House, you can join that list by going to your online communication card and checking the box or texting the word holiday to the Brookview text address and we will get you the link that's going to come out for that starting next week when I'm back in the office on Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, all that I have. That was enough. Okay. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. But the world so hated God that it sinned against him. If you do not turn from your sins, you will die. It's that simple. You either turn or you burn. If you do not repent, you will be cast into the lake of fire and you will burn there forever. This is what you call love speech. We're telling the truth here. Jesus Christ will come back and judge all of us. If we die separated from God in this life, we will be separated for eternity. Think of the worst horror movie you have ever seen. We're gonna go to a drive-through right now and demonstrate that you can hand out gospel tracts and drive through windows. So fast food restaurants, if you're making a coffee stop. Okay, so we're just gonna take our stuff, we're gonna pay for it, we'll try to hand out one of these. Sometimes, usually they take them, sometimes they don't. Starbucks is a great place because you can probably assume that if you work at Starbucks, you're not a believer. That's just, that's just the way it goes, it's the nature of it. How's it going, sir? Would you like a gospel track today? Sorry? Gospel track today to save you from your sins? Oh, yeah. You think you're a good person? Sorry? Do you think you're a good person? I guess. Yeah? 
Bible says no one's good, right? Thank you. No. Take care, boys. Take care of your soul, sir. Like a gospel track today? Save you from your sins? How's it going, sir? Like a gospel track? No one's good, that's the problem. This thing's now telling me I'm almost out of batteries, but it didn't tell me that until the last three seconds. So can you, <clears throat> yeah, uh, double A's, two double A's. Coming up. super smooth there we go thank you hi everybody well you guys this is the last message of this seven-week series and some of you are going thank God <laughs> and I just want to say if that's you um, thank you for being super gracious for the last, you know, for however long this has been. And also, that's the last of that intro video. Yeah, well, yeah. So from today on, it is not safe to assume that everyone who works at Starbucks is not a believer. Well, we've been asking over this last stretch here, how can we best engage our culture with the gospel? And today, as we wrap this up, I, I want to look at a very key passage in Scripture that has come to be known as the Great Commission. Uh, so the Gospel of Matthew concludes with these words. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now that's always fascinating to me because this is the resurrected Jesus. And yet some are like, yeah, I don't know. Right? That's odd. Okay. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus tells him, I have been given all authority, and now I am passing it on to you. Guys, the authority of, of heaven and earth has been passed from the Father to Jesus, and then from Jesus to us. Like, you and I have the authority of heaven and earth. Authority to do what? Authority to make disciples to teach them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. Jesus came offering a profound vision of human flourishing. And you and I are invited not only to embrace his vision and live it, we're also invited to help other people do the same. We are to learn from Jesus, but we are also to pass on what we learn. We are to experience the kingdom of God, but also help others experience his kingdom. Go and, and make disciples, teaching them to embrace, to be renewed by, and to live out everything I have taught you. Now, the practice of this is sometimes compared to farming. P. 
People learn to live the way of Jesus as a process, right? That's key. This is a process, and it happens over time. Like first, they have to repent and believe. They have to come to trust in Jesus, and it may take a, a really long time for that to happen. It, there will often be many significant steps involved along the way, but then after they trust in Jesus, after they repent and believe, it is a process to mature and to grow, to learn to actually think like Jesus and to learn to actually live like Jesus. And for each step along the way toward repenting and believing, and then after that toward maturity, there's this process that we can think of as like a heart cultivation. You know, one person might come along in someone's life and, and turn the soil and prepare them, and then another may come along and cultivate a little bit more. And then somebody else comes along and plants seeds. And then Paul says somebody else comes along and waters those seeds and, and watches it all grow. But often the various people that are all involved in the process don't know about the other people that were involved in the process. And many of those people may not be there to see the harvest or to see the moment of repentance and belief. But all have had a hand in making a disciple. Dr. James Engel from um, Wheaton Graduate School developed a model, and it gives us a picture of what this might look like. Um, it's called the Engel scale, and, and here's, here's what it looks like. Many of you have seen this before in other contexts. But in this model, the person who accepts Jesus, who repents and believes and decides to follow Jesus, this person would be at the zero point on the scale. To the right of, of zero are, are all the positive numbers, right? Plus one, plus two, plus five, plus eight, plus ten, and so on, all the way. And, 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 and so as this apprentice of Jesus matures, he or she progresses to the right. To the left of zero then would be the corresponding negative numbers. So a person who, if we, we, we looked at a person who's negative one, that means they are like right on the verge of trusting Jesus. They are right on the verge of repentance and belief. They're very close to that zero hour, but they're not quite there. The person who's much less interested in Jesus, we might say they're at like negative five, and the person who would rather knock your teeth down your throat than talk to you about Jesus, we might say they're at like negative 10. But if in the process of preparing someone to respond to Jesus, you help a person move from negative six to, let's say, negative two, that's a really significant thing, right? That's like a really big deal. Now, you may not be there for their zero-hour moment, but you will have been used by God in a big way in their process. Now, a couple of other observations. Many of us have been taught to think of the two different sides of zero as very different and very, very separate. So moving people towards zero on the left, we call what? Evangelism, right? Then when we get on the other side of zero and, and we're moving people toward the positive 10 on the plus side, we call that discipleship, right? I just want to ask you guys a really simple question. When Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, was he talking about the, the left side or the right side of this model? He was talking about both. Like, both are really important. Both are discipleship, in a sense. Um, like, when, when you think about it, he, he had to have, those guys had to go into the Greek and the, and the Roman and Jewish worlds and help people understand who Jesus is and trust him and repent and believe and follow Jesus. But then after that, they had to teach, they had to teach people to obey and to, to, to obey everything that Jesus had taught them. In other words, help them grow towards positive 10 as much as, as they can. Help them become more kind and loving and mature and wise and self-controlled. To help them learn how to encounter God and, and worship and surrender. To help them learn how to be forgiven and then learn how to forgive and more. So when Jesus says, go and make disciples, you guys, it refers to everything from negative 10 to positive 10. It's all of it. It's the whole deal. 
It isn't complete at the zero hour. Zero is, is not the finish line with Jesus, right? It's, it's more like the starting line. So when we engage in making disciples, the goal is always maturity. We, we want to grow one another as close to positive 10 as we can. Okay? Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. You're not alone in this. God is with you. Jesus is with you. The Holy Spirit is with you. And as we finish up this series... I want us to think about discipleship. Like, how do disciples get made? Like, how on earth do we make disciples? And so to start off with, I think it'd be helpful to just define terms. What is a disciple? What is discipleship? I mean, if the, if the Great Commission is to go and make disciples, what is a disciple? Well, the word discipleship means different things to different people, depending on what background you have or where you come from. For, for some, it means like one-on-one mentorship by an older, wiser, more experienced follower of Jesus to maybe one or two, maybe three younger, not as mature followers of Jesus. For others, they sort of envision like a kind of, of leadership development. It's, it's raising up and releasing the next generation of Christian leaders. For others, it's more of like in-depth Bible study. It's about knowledge. It's about teaching the framework of of basic Christian doctrine. Now, you guys, all of those are great things. They're all great things. And I, I would like to be involved and am involved in all three, and many of you are. And I am behind them 110%. But with all due respect, I am hesitant to call any of those three things discipleship. All of those things may play some sort of role in making disciples, but none of those things by any means fully encompass discipleship. The truth is discipleship is more a posture than a particular program. Discipleship is not primarily a program you do, it's who you are. Um, The Greek word that's translated as disciple is mathetes. And it can be translated disciple or student or pupil or follower. But a number of Greek scholars are now arguing that the best word that we have in English to capture the full meaning behind mathetes is apprentice. So not just disciple, but an apprentice under like a rabbi in this case. Now, for some of you, it might surprise you to learn that Jesus did not actually invent discipleship. Sometimes we we talk about discipleship apart from its original context. And the truth is, discipleship didn't even start in the first century. And it did not start in Israel among the Jewish people. It began cultures before, before all that, before Jesus, in Greece with Greek philosophers like Socrates. And then it spread across the Mediterranean to Israel and Jewish rabbis and became the mode of like the most elite education that you could get. So if you were in Greece, trying to envision this, you're in Greece and you became a disciple of Socrates, that was like elite, elite level stuff. It was on par with like a doctorate from Harvard or Yale or Cambridge or Oxford or whatever in our culture. And it was the same with the Jewish rabbis. To be a disciple of a distinguished rabbi was like a doctorate program. It was reserved for the best of the best of the best. The religious and intellectual elite would apply to apprentice under a prestigious rabbi, and then only the very top made the cut, which made Jesus' invitation to all utterly radical. This was different. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me okay, and be my disciple, It was just, if anyone would come after me or follow me or become my disciple. This just wasn't open to a select few. This, This went way, way, way beyond the 12. There were many disciples outside of just the 12 because Jesus was utterly inclusive. Whosoever may come and be my disciple. It was unthinkable. And he made the way open not just for men, 
but also for women. I mean, as far as we can tell, as far as we can tell, no other rabbi of his time had female disciples. None. But Jesus welcomed Mary and Martha and many other women to be his apprentices in like this school of kingdom living. And for us as followers of Jesus, our goal is parallel to a first century mathetes. The goal was to learn from the rabbi how to become like the rabbi. And that's our goal as an apprentice of Jesus. It's like, it's really basic three simple things. One is to be with Jesus, to follow him around and spend time in his presence and in his love. Two is to become like Jesus, to let Jesus' teaching and life and spirit and way transform us from the inside out and then spill out of us. And then third, to do what Jesus did, or maybe, maybe better language would be to do what Jesus would do if he were us. So like if you were a first century apprentice under a rabbi, if you were a disciple, you were literally training to become a rabbi one day yourself. That was the whole goal. You looked forward to a day that you hoped your rabbi would turn to you and say something like, okay, kid, okay, young man, I think you're ready. Now you go and make disciples. In the same way, we're training under Jesus to do the kinds of things that he did, but we are to do them in our life, in our context, to figure out, like, what would Jesus do if he were me? Like, what would Jesus do if he were a single parent or a young mother or a grandma? What would Jesus do if he were a business owner or a CEO or a manager or a college student or a high school student or a middle school student or a stay-at-home dad or the pastor of a church in... Briar, right? In other words, what would Jesus do if he were you, if he were me? And discipleship, or we could say apprenticeship to Jesus, is a lifelong process. And that word process is key. Many teachers of the way of Jesus call that process, it gets called not only discipleship, but this is kind of cool, it gets called spiritual formation. Um, Paul writes a beautiful passage using formation language in Romans 12. And it starts with this. He kind of sets it up with this. It says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So Paul is writing to this new family of God made up of Jews and Gentiles, Romans, Greeks, Jews, and he encourages them to worship not just at a temple or at a church, not just through singing or music or some kind of offering, but he's saying with your whole life. Worship is your whole life. And then we get to the formation language. Verse 2 says, do not conform, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The word that is translated here, both conformed and transformed in the NIV, it's the same word. It's the same word in Greek. It's metamorpho. Um, It's where we, we get the word, anybody want to guess? Oh, this is a room full of scholars. <laughs> Metamorphosis, right? Yeah, so you think of like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly, that process of, of transformation. It's sort of this picture of spiritual formation, being conformed or transformed or formed. It's all based on this Greek word metamorpho. Um, and it's this process by which we're, we're transformed into something entirely new, like same DNA, But somehow we become this whole new reality. And notice something here. Notice that for Paul, formation is happening to us all the time, whether we are Christians or not. Meaning we're all being formed every minute of every day. The question is not, are you being formed? It's, what are you being formed into? The question is not, are you a disciple? It's, who or what are you a disciple of? For Paul, here's the key insight. Like, none of us is a blank slate. We already have been and are continually being formed by something. We are constantly being formed by cultural forces all around us, whether that's America 
or the family we grew up in, or the guys from work, or the other mommies we hang out with, or the culture of Briar, or Snohomish, or Edmonds, or Muckleteal, or Bothell, or wherever you happen to live, or the influence of Instagram, or the shows we watch on TV, or the news source we go to for information, or the music we listen to, all of that kind of stuff is forming us all the time. And Paul says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, be transformed. All Christian spiritual formation, or if you prefer discipleship, is like counter-formation or counter-discipleship because the world all around us is trying to squeeze us into its mold, is trying to form us into its image. The task of discipleship to Jesus is to like take that pressure and push back in the opposite direction. And this is what makes discipleship to Jesus so hard. Because there is, there's opposition from outside us and then also there's resistance from inside us, right? What the New Testament calls the flesh. There's parts of us that don't want to be conformed or transformed. So spiritual formation or discipleship or apprenticeship, if you prefer, is to be with Jesus, become more like him and do what he did, and in so doing, to allow God to transform us from the inside out. So the question then is like, how? How do we apprentice under Jesus in such a way that we were truly formed into his image? Not just like continually malformed or, or deformed into the, the culture of the world around us. And I, I want to share with you guys just some basic principles of formation, like how we are formed. And, and these principles are by no means like exhaustive. They are not all that could be said, but these are extremely helpful to sort of factor into the equation of who you're becoming. Because we are all being formed every moment. And so here are some things that lead to unintentional formation, meaning these are things that are at work on you, whether you're aware of it or not. You don't need to be strategic or plan or organize your life around them. These things simply are at work forming you. And I'll give you six. Okay, the first is the stories we believe. We, we all have stories or narratives in our mind that we live by. Our brain is literally wired, neurobiologists tell us, for story, to take the complex data of our world and to place it into a narrative to give it meaning and purpose and to give us a sense of direction by which we live. Okay, here's one example. Human sexuality, that kind of running question in our age. If you believe that all of life is a cosmic accident, and you believe that monogamy is just a social construct and that sex is no more than a kind of biological release, like there's no purpose to it beyond the, the propagation and continuation of, of our species. If you believe it's not created and designed to be an intimacy-based wonder, then that will give shape to what you do with your body. Like, if you let that narrative drive the course of your life, it will determine what you do with your body and what you do with your relationships. And as a result, it will shape the person that you become. Psychologists use the language of um, mental maps. And you can think of it like this. I, I, I have a mental map of how to get from my house in Muckleteo to our church. You guys are not going to believe this, but I don't have to pull out my phone and use Waze or anything. Like, I have a mental map. We all have mental maps. We have mental maps for all kinds of things, for how to get to the grocery store, for how to get to our favorite coffee shop, or to the kids' school, or whatever. In the same way, we have maps, mental maps, for all of life, for how to navigate it all, for sexuality, for relationships, for marriage, for parenting, for nutrition, for finances, for entertainment, for philosophy, for religion, for theology, for life after death, for everything. And if our mental maps are true, meaning if they correspond to reality, then when we follow those mental maps, we show up to reality in such a way that we can thrive. 
Just like if, if I have a wrong mental map of how to get from home to church, I could end up at some other church and walk in their doors and try to preach, right? I'm like, hey guys, I got a sermon. Let's go. Can I speak today? And they're like, yeah, no, right? If my mental maps are true, if they match reality, then I can show up to our church here on time and I can see you guys and be with you and see your eyes. Right? Or I can show up to other, I can, if, I have a, if I have a mental map that corresponds to reality, I can show up to my marriage well. I can show up to my family well. I can show up in a way that I flourish. I, I can show up to managing my finances in a way that I thrive. But if our mental maps are off, if they do not correspond to reality, if they're untrue or, or worse, if they're just flat out lies, I mean, Jesus called the enemy the father of lies then when we show up to reality in such a way that we're at odds or at war with reality, then we, we suffer the pain from the sabotage of lies that we're believing. All this to say, our mental maps really matter. We live from stories. We all live from stories. Mental maps are formed by the stories that we believe and that we put our faith in. Like, this is what will lead me to the good life. Our internal stories are forming us all the time, okay? But that's not all. We're also formed by, number two, our habits, right? All sorts of work has been done over the last few decades in the field of psychology to point out the power of habit. I mean, in some ways, you could say we are simply the, the cumulative effect of our habits. Our habits uh, uh, impact our values and our desires and, and who we are. For example, Jen my wife, has discovered something about herself. Um, just this habit thing and how. So if she spends too much time at the mall, shopping or, or just being there, it births in her scarcity and inadequacy and annoyance with a lot of people. And so it does not form her into her best self. And, and if she spends very much time at the mall, she doesn't like who she is at the end of it all, right? She starts to feel not pretty enough, not cool enough, like all her clothes are lame. She starts to feel like her care, haircut's not cute enough and like she needs new furniture and a new car. She starts to feel like, you guys, she feels like the pet's heads are falling off, <laughs> right? Now, an immature Jen might try to fix it by shopping more, to try to soothe her ache of discontent with more stuff, which would lead, of course, to a deeper ache. But Jen has decided that hanging out at the mall sort of deforms her or malforms her. So she avoids the mall as much as possible so that she can increase contentment and increase her love for humanity. And I just want to say, as her husband, I find it very wise. <laughs> she has my full support. So the habit of going to the mall actually reshapes her values. It reshapes her longings and her loves. And, and this is what habits do. They shape us. They are not neutral. They can shape us for good or they can shape us for not so good, depending on the habit. I mean, think about things like social media or your news source or prayer or coffee with a friend or your digital rhythms and habits. We are always being formed by our habits for good or for not so good. Number three, our relationships. You don't need a PhD in neuroscience to figure out that we, we tend to become like the people we spend time with on a regular basis, right? If you're parents of, of teenagers, is this not like, on the forefront of your brain. Because when we hang out with people, we, we start to talk more like them. We start to think more like them. We start to vote more like them. We start to act more like them. We make judgments more like them. We value what they value more and more. We get a lot of our social norms from them. And this, again, is a good thing or a bad thing, depending on the people. We are being formed. The question is not, are we being formed? The question is, how are we being formed by the people in our life? Okay, number four, environment. 
Now, culture, you know, or again, in New Testament language, the world is a formation machine. I mean, think about our culture where advertising and politics and intellectual agenda is just, it's everywhere. It's all over the place. Our culture is trying to form you into a certain kind of person. And because of the rapid rise of technology and our utter reliance on it in COVID, we all kind of live in two places at once. In the real world with like face-to-face interactions with actual people and then in the digital world. This place where there are tribes and ideologies everywhere. And, and from our devices, we just sort of receive this steady drip, this steady stream of, of values that are good or bad, of information that is true or untrue, uh, 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 of stories to build our lives upon, some based on reality and some not so much. Now, the stories that we believe and our habits and our relationships and our environment, they all kind of collaborate and conspire together to form us into a very specific person. And all of this happens, number five, over time. And that's part of why this is so dangerous. Because it can happen kind of incrementally so that we don't even feel it. But what happens is you you wake up one day And you're saying and thinking and doing and acting in ways that five years ago were unthinkable. And that's a good thing or a bad thing, depending on who you're becoming. Okay, one more factor. We're shaped, number six, through experiences. Like you get married or you get divorced or you have your first child or you become an empty nester or you lose your job or you lose a friend or a dream dies or you experience the death of someone you love, whether negative or positive experiences form us. Now, here's my, here's my point, okay? Here's my point. All of this has an effect on us. And, all, and, here's, the, and here's what I want you to get from this. And all you have to do to have this have an effect on you is wake up in the morning and do life. You don't need to make a plan. You don't need to be strategic. You don't need to come up with a list of, you, you, all you have to do is kind of wake up and live. And our world, advertising, our phone, the internet, culture, all of it just carries us somewhere. It forms us into something. We are being formed in one way or another every moment. It could be formation for good or for not so good. So the big time question that followers of Jesus have asked for 2,000 years, like sage followers of Jesus is, how then can we harness these factors to become more like Christ? Is there a way to experience like intentional formation? How can we allow what influences us to to index us toward Jesus. So let's run through some helpful ways to sort of harness what forms us. Like if we're wanting to become more like Christ, if we're going to be disciples who learn to, to be with Jesus and to become like him and to do what he would do if he were us, how do we use these factors to, to move us in that direction? Well, it will be vital, of course, that we trust the right stories. And one of the primary ways that this happens is through teaching, which comes to us in many forms. But the best kind of teaching does more than just like tell us right from wrong, right? It does more than help us sort like fact from fiction. Good teaching, what it does is it gets into our head with a new vision of the good life. And it undermines the other stories that we've come to believe, stories that we have mistakenly put our trust in. And it says, you know what? Actually, that's not... That's not true. That's a lie. This is the truth. And there is this, when we, when we, there's a resonance in our spirit and it's aimed at our mind, but, but what happens is it gets deep into our imagination and our, and our heart. And this kind of a teaching comes in all shapes and sizes, right? It's, it's what, it's what I'm doing right now. It's a sermon at church, but it's also reading the Bible or a discussion that happens in a, in a you know, small group. Or it could be reading a, a book or listening to a, you know, a, a like scripture-based podcast or watching Bible project videos or, or going to an if gathering. <laughs> By the way, how many of you were here yesterday? Oh my gosh, the estrogen is just flowing in here. I knew I could feel. How was it, ladies? 
Uh, it was more than that. Come on. Oh, yeah. There it is. Okay. So teaching comes to us in many forms. And, and it plays a vital role in our spirit. So it's not just knowing facts from fiction or right from wrong. It, what it does is it empowers us to live by different stories. But teaching and getting the right ideas into our head is only the beginning. It's foundational, but it's not the end of the story. So number two, spiritual disciplines, like training. Like we need habits from the life of Jesus that sort of habituate the truth into us. Habits that take the mental maps of Jesus into our daily life. If our habits are always forming us, then let's, let's be formed toward Jesus. Things like prayer and reading scripture and listening to worship music and gathering with other Christ followers in living rooms or on Zoom weekly or coming to church to worship or, or to learn or, or, or learning to serve one another. Taking communion to remember God's goodness to us. These, these practices get into our heart and then they shape our thoughts and they shape our feelings and values and desires. And over time, we increase our capacity for all kinds of stuff. For forgiveness, right? And for love and for courage and for discernment and hope and joy. In other words, what we, what we cannot do today, we will actually be able to do one day. Many people think uh, living the way of Jesus is like, it's all about like trying hard. How many of you have ever been to like Christian camp? Like some sort of a mountaintop experience, right? You go to Christian camp and it's just like, I am on fire for Jesus. I just want to punch people in the face for Jesus because I'm so fired up, right? And my whole life is going to be different. This is going to be amazing. And I come out of there and I'm fired up, right? So now I'm going to go back to my old life and I'm just going to try really hard. How did that work for you guys? Yeah, how did that work? So, so yeah, we do need to try hard, but there's actually more to it. We tend to think it's all about trying hard, and there's no doubt it takes effort. But as much as it's about trying hard, it's also about training hard. Right? In 1 Timothy, Paul says, train yourself to be godly. Paul uses an image of, of like athletic, athletic training in our process of spiritual formation. So think about like running a marathon. Do we have anybody in here who's ever run a marathon? The whole Blakely family. <laughs> oh, God bless you guys. Uh, well, I and the rest of us have never run a marathon. And I don't know about y'all. I don't think I ever will. Uh, okay, but, but here's what I have talked. To, I have talked to like elite human beings who have run marathons. And what they tell me is they train. Like they train hard. Like, if you want to someday run a marathon, here's some basic advice. You don't just wake up in the morning, like on the morning of the marathon, and then like listen to an inspirational TED Talk, right? And then pound a couple of Red Bulls and get all jacked up so that you can try really, really hard to go run 26.2 miles. No, you, you wake up many, many, many months before that and you start training and you, you run several times a week, gradually increasing in distance. And, and here's the magic to it. If you train hard and you train wisely, here's what happens. Over a long period of time, you become the kind of person for whom running 26.2 miles is hard and takes great effort, but it is well within your capacity as a human being to do it. Training is how we increase our capacity. Like you want to get past your anger or anxiety or, or fear or hatred or lust, or whatever, yes, it is going to take trying hard, but it will take a lot more than that. It will also take training hard. It will take regular habits that form you and shape you, meaningful spiritual disciplines that form and strengthen you. And if you train hard and you train well, one day, and this is the beautiful thing of following Jesus, one day you will be able to do what, what you right now are not able to do. Number three, community. Guys, we just, we cannot follow Jesus alone. We, we become like who we hang out with. We need to band together with other followers of Jesus in a kind of alternative society where we adopt different values. 
And, and we need to help each other hold to the way of Jesus and hold to some of the spiritual disciplines that we're saying we want to do. And we shape and guide and we index one another toward God. In community, we, we see the way of Jesus lived out and we, and, and we pick up on it from other people, right? We, we, we watch the way more mature followers do conflict. We watch the way more mature followers do parenting. We watch the way they navigate like suffering and disappointment. We watch how they do finances and marriage and sex. Okay, so actually we don't watch how they do sex. <laughs> I just want to be clear about that. But, but we can, in talking with them, pick up on their values around sex. Um, sexuality. Okay, so, so we pick up stuff like in community, we learn from others. We learn how to pray, right? We learn to read and understand and apply scripture by reading it and talking about it and applying it with other Christ followers. We learn how to worship and we learn how to serve and we, we learn how to confront people in love and we, we learn how to be forgiven and we learn how to forgive and we, we learn how to be patient and kind by watching others. We, we don't follow Jesus alone, but inside of a community, inside a spiritual family with spiritual brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers, some of the most important things are caught as much as they are taught. And we, and we catch many treasures if we are willing to live inside of Christ-centered community. Number four, the Holy Spirit. Like we're always shaped by our environment. So we must come to the place where the Holy Spirit is our environment. Where more and more we, we eat, sleep, and breathe His presence. We become attentive to His leading and prompting. We allow Him to affirm God's love for us in our spirit. And He, he becomes as real to us as our city or our phone or, or the news or what's happening on Instagram. And much of our ability to do this comes as we do some of the other stuff, as we receive teaching and as we engage in spiritual disciplines like prayer and scripture and worship and as we live in community with brothers and sisters and spiritual fathers and, and mothers in Christ. And I'll tell you what, when it, when it comes to the Holy Spirit being my environment, I am nowhere close to where I long to be one day. Nowhere close. And this has not been easy for me at all. But I am growing and experiencing this more and more. And it comes as, as, I, as I start to live different stories. It comes through regular spiritual disciplines. It comes through life in a spiritual family. And it happens more and more, number five, over time. You don't become like Jesus in an afternoon or a month or two. It doesn't happen through one five-week course or a really intensive camp or a retreat experience, right? There's no silver bullet. There's no killer app. It is a lifelong process. You have to keep at it. You have to show up day after day after day and then let God do the work over a lifetime. As Eugene Peterson said one time about maturity or life with Jesus, he said it's a long obedience in the same direction. It takes time. And then one more. It takes, it takes a certain type of experience that we all get, which is, number six, suffering. We are shaped by our experiences, as we already saw, but if we follow Jesus, there is no experience informing us like suffering. Whether you follow Jesus or not, life is not easy. But if you follow Jesus, the pain, frustration, and loss are often the greatest opportunities in life for God to mature us. I, I think of James chapter 1. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. It's often the, the very things that we, we try our best to avoid and we hate and we run away from. The things that we have to endure and persevere through that have the greatest potential to form us in the way of Jesus. And so often, as we face those kind of things, we are, we are liberated from all kinds of other attachments. We, we, recognize, we recognize false gods as idols 
things that we previously had clung to for life, things that we were convinced we needed to be happy and to be at peace. Suffering has the capacity to strip all of that away. So if your criterion for for living a good life is feeling happy and safe and in control, I bet this past season has likely been one of the worst of your life. But if our criterion is, I want to be with Jesus, I want to become like Him, and I want to do the kinds of things He did, then this past season has been one of the most remarkable opportunities that many of us have ever had. And what I'm saying in all of this, what I'm saying in all of this is none of us are static we are, we are dynamic. We're always morphing and changing and being formed. Jesus is inviting us to become disciples, to become his apprentices, to be with him, become like him and do what he did. But he is also inviting us to go make disciples. He's giving us the authority of heaven and earth Authority to help other people learn to be with him and become like him and and do what he would do if he were them. And you guys, there is nothing more beautiful that you can do for someone than that. But in many cases, we are only a small part of their story, right? I want to come back to the Engel scale. So often, there is so much emphasis on getting somebody from like negative one to zero, right? And that's, it's a huge deal, right? This is the moment they decide, I get that God loves me and I, and I, I receive his grace and I decide to follow Jesus and, and, and eternal destinies, are, that's huge, Right? We put so much emphasis on the negative one to zero. Uh, when somebody repents and, and believes for the first time, if, like, if you've ever been with somebody for that moment, it is breathtaking. It's so beautiful. But, but here's my point. There's a ton of other work to be done besides just that moment. Like if you help somebody, think about this. If you help somebody, you come along somebody and you have a relationship with them and you help them move from like negative eight to negative three or you help them move from positive two to positive four, you guys, it matters. It matters. Anytime you move somebody toward deeper trust in Jesus, it matters. So you can be involved in making many disciples And in many cases, you won't be there for their zero hour. And what what I want us to see is that all of it matters. It matters so much. And when someone gets to zero, they are not at the finish line. They're just at the starting line. They're about to run the race of a lifetime. And they will need from us all kinds of support. They, 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 you know, they need to experience God on the deepest levels and, and to grow and mature. They're going to need teaching and they're going to need spiritual disciplines and they're going to need community and they're going to need to learn to recognize the Holy Spirit and they will need to stay at it over time and they will need to learn to experience the love of God in the midst of suffering. So whatever role you might play in somebody's life, you guys, it matters so much. It matters so much because no matter your level of maturity or your friend's level of maturity, God longs for us to experience him more. When I was 23, I kind of had like the month of my life. Um, I met Jen, Jenny York, and, um, and we dated. But that same month, one of my best friends died. It's quite a month. Um, his name was Tom, and we had grown up together. And in high school, I kind of lived at his house, and he kind of lived at mine. And, and when he was 23, he got sick one day, and three weeks later, he died. Now, the doctors could not figure out, he had a whole team at, at the University of Washington, a whole team, and they could not figure out what was causing his decline. In the autopsy, it was determined that he had lupus. 
But I was with him on the day that he finally passed. So I'm in the, in the room with him in, at the hospital at UW, just me and him, and there's a nurse kind of doing some stuff, and I was holding his hand, and he was unconscious, and I was saying goodbye. And as I was in the room, his dad sort of snuck in the back of the room. He had not been in the room with his son for days because he just couldn't face it. But the doctors said to him, hey, today is probably your, your last chance. So Big Tom, my friend's dad, made his, his way slowly through the door. And as he looked at his son, he started to shake and just like convulse. And his legs were giving out. And so he leaned back against the back wall of the room to kind of study himself. And with tears streaming and a faint cracking voice, he just cried out. He said, I love you, son. I hope you know how much I love you. I hope that you know that you are always loved. I love you so much. You guys, I will never, ever forget that moment. Never. Because that is a father's heart. I believe that that is the heart of God reflected in a human father. And what I want all of us to see is that God feels that way about every single human being. He feels that way about your coworker, about your neighbor. God feels that way about your brother, about your mom. God feels that way about your old friend. He feels that way about every single person on earth. And he is constantly crying out to any who will listen, I love you. I hope that you know how much I love you. I hope that you, have all, that you always know that you're loved. I love you. I love you so much. And some are able to receive that message more than others. Some not at all. Yet, what if they could? What if they could? And for those that do receive it some... What if they could feel it more? So whether someone is at negative eight or positive five, if we can help them encounter God more, you guys, it matters. Like it matters. It it really, really matters. It matters more than anything else, actually. And I just want to say to those of you that are here, and maybe some of you need to hear this, I just want to say God loves you like that. And it doesn't matter your flaws, and it doesn't matter your long list of failures. No matter how you have responded to this point, even if you're like spiritually sick, like if you've been deaf to the voice of God for a long time, He loves you. And maybe today, whether you're at negative two or you're you're at positive five, you just need to hear Him say, hey, I love you. I hope that you know how much I love you. I hope that you always know that you're loved because I love you so much. You guys, he's in the room today, whether you can sense him or not. He sees you and he loves you. But if you can receive it, it changes everything. It heals. It's everything. So my point, like in bringing this whole seven weeks to a close, is simply this. Let's help each other hear it. Experience it, yes? Yes. Father in heaven, you gave Jesus the authority of heaven and earth, and Jesus, you have passed it on to us.
And I pray that you would help us to not feel overwhelmed by that and inadequate in the sense of, oh, I'm not doing it right and now I feel guilty and now I need to hide from God because if it's doing that, it's doing exactly the wrong thing. But to be able to recognize that you are always with us, that you're with us to the very end of the age and you're going with us and you're working on people and you're working in them and if we come alongside and we partner with what you're doing, you can help us move people toward knowledge of you and toward the people that they, were, that they were created to become. And I pray that you would help us to think of people in our world right now that we can come alongside in some way to show love or kindness or to have a conversation or just to listen and understand where they're coming from, to show love and to show kindness and to walk with them and move them toward maturity, towards faith and belief in you. God, would you, would you use us? Thank you for loving us. When I think of the picture of my friend's dad and think of how often I've been laying there deaf and just unconscious and unable to hear, God, would you, would you awaken me to your presence? Would you awaken me to your love for me? Would you do the same for all of us? In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>